The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Emlin, Robot Beauregard <laughs> Lewis. Someday I'm going to be shot for that. Each week we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Hey man, we both had vacations. Are we recharged? Um, Speaking for myself, no. <laughs> but I was never, I don't know that I was ever discharged. Um... um. As I explained in last week's TCI Friday, I uh-huh. was on vacation, but there's no real vacations when you're a consultant. Oh, yeah. Been there. Yeah. Yeah. Many yeah, of my I... lines of work continued in a straight line right through my vacation. But mm. but but the good news is that my life is something of a vacation. So I'm fine. I'm good. Cool. Riding bikes, eating ice cream, all good. That does sound pretty darn good, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you manage the heat in Memphis? Well, you know, funny thing. I got there and it was like, you know, this isn't so bad. I could do this. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's hot and it's kind of humid. And then four days before the end... Then the proper Memphis showed up where, right. you know, temperatures were in the 90s and the the humidity was somewhere north of 70 percent. Yeah. And like you step outside and start sweating. Yeah. It's like the I haven't even heard the door slam shut yet and already I'm sweating. It's like, oh, no, I rem- Yeah, this is this is what I was dreading. Ah, now I remember. Yeah. <laughs> there's a th- there's a thing that I learned about recently called wet bulb temperature. Okay, what's that? So wet bulb, this is a real thing that um climate scientists are very concerned about. And wet bulb temperature is uh it, what it's interested in is the points at which the humidity is high enough and the temperature is high enough in combination that your body actually can't sweat enough to um, shed heat. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. The last four days in Memphis. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's a temperature at which it doesn't matter what you eat or drink mm-hmm. because your bo- your body can't process heat quickly enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't yeah. know that was a thing cognitively. Uh, but my body has, uh, understood that at a very implicit level since about 1987. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think I mentioned that I had a pretty bad dehydration incident a few weeks ago Yeah, and it was proposed to me that perhaps I had encountered a wet bulb moment where everything, all the things stacked up correctly. I was, I had water, I had food, I had fitness, uh, but I was unable to make my body do the thing that it was trying to do. Yeah, um, that totally scans that. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a day where I'd been out for a ride and I, I got back to where I was staying and I took off my jersey. And it felt uh, a lot more like a jacket weight wise. Yeah. That's never, almost never not the case for me. Mm. Uh, That's how I sweat all the time. My body, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, It was, it was really something. I mean, I really enjoyed my visit. Uh, It was tremendous on a lot of levels. Um, Mm. I've realized that my unhappiness with Memphis in the 1980s really wasn't 
I mean, it was some about Memphis, but it was really mostly about just me being an unhappy person. And so now that I'm a good deal happier, when I go back to Memphis, uh, I have a much better time. Yeah, imagine that. I, who knew? Uh, it's one of those wherever you go, there you are, or wherever you mm-hmm. are, there you go. Well, you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do. I do. Um, yeah. It's also, you know, I, I don't want to downplay Memphis's improvements at all. I don't mean to knock its past, but Memphis is a good deal more interesting place now than it once was. Hmm. Yeah. I just, there's a lot more culture going on there. Um, I don't, I didn't actually take the time to do a count of the number of craft breweries there are in Memphis. Hmm. Um, but that what counts as culture. On, on it's, it's kind of a canary. Country. I consider oh, yeah. I consider craft breweries to be a canary of culture. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the one that was like the little bitty upstart 10 years ago now has this mammoth facility downtown. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. How did that happen? Well, beer, beer remains pretty popular, which explains why it's 50 percent of the ads on television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but there are other things like there are a whole lot more bike lanes in and around Memphis now. And, uh, there's also this little outfit called Mem Pops, which make the most amazing popsicles you will have in your life. Hmm. Yeah. I did not know that, uh, craft popsicles was a thing. Oh, it's on. There's so much I don't know. <laughs> Let's just, <laughs> yeah. let it's a that. big world. It's a big world. Yeah. So uh, what are you pulling us through this week? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, Having said that, I didn't really take a vacation or need a vacation. uh, I'm in kind of a mood this week. So naturally, I want to talk about gymnastics. Ah, mm, all right. Yeah. Actually, I don't really want to talk about gymnastics because I don't actually like gymnastics. The American people, public, the American public seems to really love gymnastics and figure skating. You know, at least once every four years, they like those things. But I I actually don't I don't actually care for either of those sports. And to be clear, those sports are hard and the athletes are amazing. I'm just not entertained by them. It's me, not them. They're just not my jam. Right. But nonetheless, the athletes are. Superior, amazing and wonderful. Yeah, my credit, my disinterest in in those sports doesn't say anything about the people either who are interested in them or who practice them. What so so what what I'm really <laughs> um, lurching towards here is the uh, the Simone Biles situation mm. where she withdrew from her competition because she didn't feel up to performing either from a mental, emotional or physical point of view. There are there are specifics and there are details that have, you know, the media has tried to hang on what happened, but I'm not really concerned with those. In fact, I think the details only serve to obscure the larger point. And to me, the larger point is this. If an elite athlete, any athlete actually, reaches a point where they're not comfortable competing, if they can't go forward without hurting themselves in in whatever way. Mm hmm then they shouldn't. Yeah, it's not it's not for me to judge whether they tried hard enough. It's not for me to judge whether they're tough enough or whether they've sacrificed enough. Uh, As someone who's dealt with lifelong depression, I know that it's not really possible to understand what's in another person's head. Yeah, what they're dealing with. And so I'm just appalled at the folks who a feel an athlete owes them something. (laughs) And B, feels qualified to judge. And then even C, wants someone to cause themselves harm in order to provide some spectacle for the rest of us. Right. Right. So this is in my head um, because I have a race this weekend Mm. and I've reached that late, late stage anxiety you get before an event. Oh, I've never done that. Yeah, right. You know, you find yourself daydreaming about what it's going to be like. You can't actually put it's not really daydreaming. It's like day obsessing. 
<laughs> you can't really put it out of your head. Um, like you're just trying to pre-suffer or something. You know, you're just trying to say like, it's not going to be that hard. It is going to be that hard. Just mm-hmm. accept that mm-hmm. it's going to be that hard. No, it won't be. You're just being weird. You know, you like that dial that those words just go on over and over again. Yep. So, I mean, my relationship with events is tenuous anyway. I don't have that competitive fire like many people do. So I'm only ever really racing with myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still get performance anxiety. Yep. I mean, I do care how I do. I just don't <laughs> care how I do relative to you. Right. Uh, right. And and I'm very in touch with that this week. And it's making me fairly feel really sympathetic and empathetic toward Simone Biles, who, frankly, I know people say she's the best of all time. I haven't watched any of it. Um, I'm sure she's wonderful in all of the ways. I bet she's one of the best ever. And I'm just I'm just um all those people have more on the line than I ever will athletically They're They've worked harder. They've had more expectations, expectations heaped onto them and they're built differently than me physically anyway, but we all have human frailties and it makes me sick to hear people denigrating young athletes or any athlete really just for taking care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't and and you can you can extrapolate back to the bike and and what we ask our elite level cyclists to go through or just what we ask each other to go through. And and my whole message is just lighten the up. <laughs> lighten up. Okay, rant over. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you um if not a thousand percent, nine hundred and ninety nine percent. Yeah. 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 You know, I actually posted in uh, social media about this and um, uh, a member uh, of uh, our audience. I'm not sure if it was Paceline or TCI, uh, someone who had decided to follow me um, called me a sissy and a snowflake and um, a few other less repeatable terms, unless I want to click on explicit as I mix this. Um, And I was, I was really pretty shocked at how distasteful the disagreement was. I'm happy to debate this stuff. Um, I don't actually think that uh, someone uh, who is, competing on the international stage owes me anything. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I don't go out of my way to watch gymnastics, but if I'm in the right seat and the right channel is on, uh, it's pretty cool to watch. And I have seen Simone Biles compete, uh, elsewhere and was impressed as hell by her. And I have a, couple of thoughts aside from you know it's funny to hear someone call me a snowflake for saying hey let's let's lay off these folks but then to say that their quality of life was somehow harmed by her not competing it's like really that messed your life up uh Mm. so i was a pretty pretty serious skateboarder back in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, that was kind of my big, uh, physical and creative pursuit there. Um, it overlapped with drumming some, and you know, there's a lot of stuff for which muscle memory just has to take over. Right. You, your brain shuts off, uh, for everyone who's uh, followed our previous discussions about flow, that's flow. The brain shuts off and you go to pure muscle memory. Now, if anything interrupts that whole routine upon entry, uh, things can go wrong. We fall down, we go boom. Um, And so I've certainly had those experiences where there was a distraction for some reason or Something caused my confidence to momentarily wane. Um, and yeah, I, I ended up hurt. 
more recently, I can recall being on a descent on a mountain bike. This was before I left Southern California. And I went into, I went into this turn and then suddenly was staring down something that was a, at least a solid 25%. And I, for whatever reason, I think a tire slid, I hadn't yet hit my dropper post. And so I was still high posting and I'm looking at 25%. And I suddenly lacked all confidence to get down this trail. And so I clipped a foot out and I managed to get a foot on the ground and I managed to get myself stopped. Um, and then when I thought, no, you, you can do this, you know, you, you're actually a reasonably capable cyclist. You can pull this off. Uh, the moment I lifted that foot and tried to get it back on the pedal, adrenaline shot through my body uh, as if it was sound just instantaneously everywhere. And I was shaking so badly. I had to get my foot back on the ground, got the other foot on the ground and realized there's, I just can't possibly work this out physically because I'm shaking too badly. Right. So then became uh, a challenge of like, well, how on this narrow pitch of earth, because there was a cliff to my right, how do I manage to get the bike kind of leaned over so I can get my foot uh, over the top tube and, you know, completely dismount the bike? I was a mess. <laughs> Nothing even happened, but I was a complete mess. I'm um, laughing because I can relate, not because I find yeah, you funny. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, both are fair. Uh, mm. But really, you know, when I think about how badly wrong things can go, even without injury, yeah. you know, my confidence was completely shot. I didn't do another steep descent that day. Um, you know, if someone says, hey, this isn't feeling right to me, um, and you combine that with the fact that what they're attempting is so incredibly difficult or perhaps even dangerous that if you do it wrong, you could end up dead. I don't know. I'm willing to go. Well, yeah, you, you, um, I don't know. Go get a hot tub, have a beer. Yeah. Yeah. Hit the showers. You're done. Yeah. That's okay. And you know, honestly, I am, I'm heartened to see someone at that level of achievement, say, no, I need to do this instead to take care of myself. I mean, when was the last time we ever discussed like world-class self-care? <laughs> Can we maybe give a gold medal for good self-care? Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, the, maybe I come at it. You're right. That's, that's the right approach. I think also though, um, you know, there's a long history of elite level athletes struggling with depression and even suicide at rates higher than the general public. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that and that's somewhat intuitive, right? They uh, are they live this life that is more focused, involves more sacrifice, involves higher stakes. Um, and then at some point they've either achieved that and but they're past to their peak and so this drumbeat of support goes away or they've failed and they have just the rest of their life to think about what they did you know in their minds wrong mm -hmm. um meanwhile the whole world tells them that they have to do what they're supposed to do, what we all expect from them or else they're a failure. I don't know. It sounds like a game you can only lose, even if you have a gold medal. Yeah. And if that makes, and if that makes me a snowflake, I mean, snowflakes are beautiful. <laughs> I'm down with that. I can be a snowflake. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was using my, my Instapot uh, just before going out of town <sighs> And, you know, when you once it's finished doing its little thing, there's a little button you push and all of a sudden all the steam comes shooting out. And I think maybe that's not terribly unlike an elite athlete. Hmm. Yeah. All the cooking yeah. has been done and oh, look, it's been under pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
uh, you know, cheers to Simone Biles and everybody else who put the rest of their lives on hold so they could go pursue excellence. The, yeah. the rewards and the lessons in that are pretty tremendous, but yeah, so are the sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. That's a woman who has pushed the bounds of what people thought was possible in that sport. And I don't think she owes anything. I don't think she owes any more. I think she's, I think she's paid up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> well said. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, yeah. But let's go on and take a break and we'll be back in a minute. The Pace Line is brought to you by The Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on Support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for your pull, Patrick. All right. So we got a comment at TCI from listener John, who lent some insight on economics and sociology in what I thought was a really lovely way. Then <laughs> up the stakes by going on to ask why, after doing the half pint at Unbound, formerly known as Dirty Kansas, I went back to the event to do the full distance. There's a larger question here that he poses. Why do we like to do hard things? Mm. Now, obviously, that answer varies. And there's also the fact that a great many people on this planet don't <laughs> like to do hard things. Uh, so I guess they are exempted from this conversation. Um, you know, I, I, I know plenty of folks who want their lives to be easier, not harder. Um, and I can't really criticize that. Um, the answer to why I went to Unbound to do the 100 and then returned two years later to do the full 200 lies in why I went there in the first place. So my original trip was more um, of a traditional form of journalism. I was there to report on the event, not just the experience of riding 200 miles of gravel, actually not to ride 200 miles of gravel. I rode 100 miles on gravel. My job was to get a sense of what the riding was like. Okay. And then witness the way the event just takes over downtown Emporia, Kansas. Um, now, <laughs> Emporia is not a big place. And so, you know, it is kind of conceivable that a cycling event could take over a town, but it's not that small. It takes a lot of cyclists to do that, but it does it in a really lovely and effective way. So after riding the hundred, I hung out at the finish for a little while. I saw a couple of friends, then went to the goo house. Uh, that is the, <laughs> the, <laughs> that sounds all wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> that is the Airbnb that folks from goo led by Yuri Hauswald. Um, they were renting just a, a few blocks from downtown. I got a shower, put on some cotton and then went back to Congress <laughs> street and met people from the town who were hanging out. Got a sandwich, hung out some more, got another sandwich, and then watched the pros begin to roll in. After a while of seeing that and like seeing Allison Tetrick uh, break the course record and be a badass uh, and say hi to her and she's all bubbly and smiling, it's like, wow, neat trick. <laughs> so after a while, I went to have dinner uh, and then went back at sunset to watch mortals finish. Folks a little more like me. Uh, did that for a while. Then I split and had uh, another dinner. That's like third dinner or something. Uh, and I went back near midnight to watch the truly determined finish. Now it was in watching people finish from somewhere in late afternoon on through the dead of night that I saw something I had never, ever seen before. I saw tears. I saw women cry. 
But I also saw big, burly dudes cry. I saw people whose eyes were open to a possibility of accomplishment they weren't sure they had within them. Those tears, near as I could tell, were the result of a revelation of grit and perseverance they didn't know they had until crossing that line. And what a discovery it was. Standing there, I realized that I wanted to, I wanted the experience of getting to the finish of an event, whether or not it was that one, but I wanted to get to the finish of an event that was so hard that simply getting to the finish line would be an emotional experience. I really wasn't sure I'd ever experienced that flavor of gratitude. And I am in some essentially fundamental way, rather existential. So then I went back in 2019 and I went out too fast because I had peaked perfectly. I had never so thoroughly and perfectly peaked for any event in my entire life. My legs convinced me for the better part of five hours that I was a badass. Uh, it was a lie. <laughs> yep. Uh, or maybe just a mistake, but either way, it was uh, not factual. <laughs> then yeah. I ran out of water five miles from a checkpoint and the temperature spiked to near or just over a hundred. I almost had to quit. <laughs> I took a break and then dialed my effort way back and proceeded to cover the second hundred miles. <laughs> it's not often that you can right. say something like that. That's a, right. that's a real phrase. I covered the second hundred miles in twice the amount of time that I had covered the first hundred in. But I did finish. And when I reached the finish line, I was so happy to be there to have even finished. I was actually more dumbfounded than emotional. You know, that doesn't really answer the question, though, of why we do hard things. Um, and I take that on more directly in an essay at TCI that will be live when this goes live. Uh, what I can say here, though, is that I've realized that I can finish anything I start on a bike unless something like an injury prevents it. In a way, I'm glad that I didn't finish until after midnight as opposed to finishing before sundown as I had originally hoped, because finishing before sundown would have meant that everything went perfectly. I haven't had too many perfect days on the bike, but I've had a few. Having a day where the stakes were so high, I'd flown halfway across the country for the event, and I knew that I wasn't likely to get another shot at doing the event. And then having things get so very sideways uh, that I was staring at the possibility of not finishing and then regrouping in a way that allowed me to defeat defeat and still finish. I'm proud as hell of that. You know, it's human to err. It is transformative, at least for me, to own a mistake and recover from it well enough to still accomplish one's goal. Honestly, it's a better story for the simple reason that I had to reckon with the full weight of the challenge at a point when quitting would have been a good deal easier. What about you, John? Have you bitten <laughs> off some challenges that you didn't think you were especially prepared for? Or maybe the, uh, the relevant question here is why? I mean, I've done it so many times. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I've bitten off challenge, you know, things I thought I was prepared for. I was sure I was prepared for. I mean, a good good example is the dehydration uh, event mm -hmm. I uh, experienced a couple weeks ago uh, where things fell apart pretty catastrophically, very quickly, uh, despite all my experience, preparation, nutrition, fitness, etc. So, um, I was thinking about this because I saw this question uh previously and i i was thinking you know i get this all the time why do i do the things that i do my wife says to me sometimes john why does everything have to be epic why does wait, it wait, always wait. have to be this way <laughs> you you that's pretty funny knowing what i know of your wife Right. She's pretty epic on her own, right? She is um, an unmitigated badass. Even if they mitigated badasses, she would still remain 
unmitigated. Yeah. That's right. She would refuse mitigation. Yeah. No, I mean, I think about this. Um, you know, there's a lot of pat answers like, oh, I go to know myself better or, you know, they're, I mean, and it, they're all true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm probably there is people have different explanations. There's a few things for me. Um, one of them is. Uh, meditation is a valuable practice. Mm. The ability to clear your mind and bring things to focus. Very valuable. And in fact, it feels really good. Yeah. It is easier for me to spend four hours in constant motion, slowly stripping away all extraneous thought (laughs) until I have nothing to do but manage whatever physical resource, physical and mental resources I have left. You know, everything else is pared away. It's easier for me to get to those moments of clarity that way than to sit on a cushion and try to will my mind still. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think a big part of it for me is I, I just, I really like the process of stripping away all the nonsense that plays on my mental radio and finding that spot where everything is clear. I just need to do one thing. It's keep moving forward. Mm hmm. And everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm thinking is pointed at that one task. And that is such a mental relief to me relative to what's normally going on in my head. And I'm, you know, I'm not tortured, but like a lot of people, I have a long to do list. I have responsibilities in a bunch of different areas, family, friends, work, other work, other, other work, you know. The dog's got to get walked. And when I'm out doing those hard things, I mean, it's really even the easy things are nice, right? You go and you do a short ride and it clears your head to a bit. But it's for me, it's a case of more, more often is not always, but often is better. Mm -hmm. It's more clarifying. It's more mentally freeing. Yeah, I, I am very much with you there. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I thought about as you were saying that is how so many times in reading about great alpinists, they talked about how climbing simplifies the world. It strips right. everything away and yeah, yeah. it brings a clarity to life that can be really difficult when you're bending down with a plastic bag in your hand to scoop up some dog poo. That's right. Yeah. And clarity certain, and simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's certainly been my experience with cycling. I mean, I've got ADD. I, I don't, I'm not ADHD. I can sit still, but sitting still well enough to clear my mind as in uh, traditional transcendental meditation. And that's not <laughs> exactly a thing for me. Uh, you know, I assisted with some psychedelics. Yes. Um, but you know, a bike, I, I guess I, I sometimes wonder why people differentiate between meditation and physical activity, because I think that most endurance sports are at their core for anyone who's done it for more than, you know, long enough to finish their first triathlon or whatever. The people who stick with it, I think they're doing it because it is a form of meditation, whether or not they have acknowledged it or anyone else has even conceded the point. Yeah, I think the I think the benefits are similar. And 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 actually, in practical terms, you know, I know uh, avid meditators who say, you know, they're just calmer Mm. because of their daily practice. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though the doing hard things, not just doing things, but doing hard things, holding myself in um, in in a in a difficult place, suffering. Mm-hmm. 
the takeaway from this is I can be, I, my body and mind have the experience of being in physical, mental, emotional difficulty and coming through. And I became aware when my dad died, you know, he was in hospice and we, we knew he was dying and he knew he was dying and we sat there and we waited and we waited mm-hmm. and it was, it was hard you know, like nothing is happening until something happens and you just have to sit, sit with it. And it's emotionally draining. But I had this experience of like doing hard things that says, yeah, I'm in pain right now, but I can sit with this and I don't have to panic. And in fact, panicking is is detrimental to yes, a good outcome. Yeah. And so uh, I think it doing hard things shares that um, that psychological training now where even if I injure myself, I, I broke my collarbone last year and I rolled over on the ground and I knew that I had broken my collarbone and yeah, I was in pain. Sure. But I looked up and it was a beautiful sunny day and I saw the trees kind of waving and I was like, that's really lovely. And I'm able mm-hmm. to have that calmness and that clarity because I've been, you know, I've put myself through some ringers. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't I don't want that to for a moment sound like some bravado. You know, like I've I've been through the ringer and I've done these things. These are the things that work for me. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make me better. It doesn't make me better than other people. It doesn't. Um, there's there's a it's really just about what's going on in my head. Uh, mm-hmm. And the way that I've had to get to those calm places. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing that I realized, um, I don't know, sometime in the last uh, 18 months or so. I, for me to have any further epiphanies on the bike about, you know, any great insights about life or the universe or the nature of man or whatever. It takes a really hard event. The first time I ever did a 50 mile ride in, you know, 70 degree temperatures. Um, that was amazing. I learned so much, right? I've done so many 50 mile rides on (laughs) 70 degree days that there's not really anything I'm going to learn from that anymore. And I've realized that the epiphanies that are still possible. And I don't even know what those are because I haven't had the epiphanies yet. It's it, you know, it's like a, almost a a position of diminishing returns where they've got to get the events have to become even harder. The demands have to be ratcheted up that much more for me to wring fresh insights uh, from a day on the bike. And that's, you know, that's a little disappointing. Um, and so I've been thinking about, well, what can I do to kind of shake the snow globe in a way so that I don't have to go out and do 250 miles on gravel? Mm. Cause I don't think my junk will agree with that. <laughs> well, I mean, just speaking for myself, I, you know, I've ridden a lot of miles in my life and uh, learned a lot of lessons from those miles. Um, and this is sacrilegious on a cycling podcast, but I've I've done other things, <laughs> you know, like I ran 30 miles uh, a few months ago and I did, uh, you know, it's in fact, the race this weekend is a mountain uh, foot race. Uh, oh. So. Yeah. So it is about kind of changing the challenge. And I I love the bike and I will continue to challenge myself on the bike. But uh, sometimes to get the epiphanies, you have to change the uh, format. That's my experience. Um, I'm always advocating. In fact, I'm reading. I I said before that I'm reading this book, The Midlife Cyclist by my friend Phil Cavell, uh, which I'll be talking about. Uh, at greater length later, but one of uh, Phil's points about uh, preserving your peak cycling into your middle years is to also do some weight bearing exercise 
Mm. hiking, walking, running, uh, things that might still be challenging or might not, but are things you're not used to doing and put, you know, the kind of weight and impact on your bones that they actually need to stay strong in order for you to continue to do big things on the bike. Yeah. That's my second rant for the show, and I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm too over my limit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, we can move on to baseline picks. All right. Um, shall I go first? Sure. All right. My pick this week is the Kuat Sherpa 2.0 Hitch Rack. Mm-hmm. So I put it out to readers uh, some months ago that I was looking for a rack for my new car uh, and that I wanted a hitch rack specifically because my experience with rooftop racks is that, uh, well, since I broke my collarbone, my shoulder doesn't love to put bikes on top of things, uh, but also that uh, it it kills your gas mileage. So putting the bikes behind (laughs) the car was attractive for me. So anyway, um... The overwhelming advice I got was get a Kuat, get a Kuat, get a Kuat. Um, I chose the Sherpa 2.0 for uh, simplicity, really. It's two bikes, uh, hitch mounted. It's solid. I like that there's reasonable distance between the bikes. The two mountain bikes go on very comfortably without a lot of saddle to bar interference. Uh, It it loads in seconds. It's got like a front wheel ratcheting arm. uh, So it's dead simple. Uh, the rear rear wheel just gets it sits in a little cradle and it gets zip banded um, and the thing doesn't move. It's solid yeah. as a rock uh, when yeah. you're not using it. It just tilts up flat against the tailgate. Uh, the that control, the tilt control is like one lever. You actually can s- just step on it and drop it or it's so it's dead simple. Um, a lot of folks told me that the racks were made in the USA I don't believe that's the case. Kuat's headquartered in Springfield, Missouri, but they don't claim to manufacture domestically. Uh, That's nowhere on their website, and I assume they would tell you if that was, in fact, the case, and that's fine. Um, I think that was probably wishful thinking on some people's part. If you're out there and you know for sure that these are made in a factory in the United States, you know, put it in the comments. I don't want to... I don't want to uh, say they aren't when they are, but I did some research on this and I couldn't find confirmation. So anyway, for six hundred and twenty nine dollars, this is a this rack is a solid value. Um, It's well made. It's easy to use. I love it. And I thank the readers who steered me this way. Yeah, I have the same rack and I love it. Uh, (laughs) I I will add two things uh that you did not note uh number one <clears throat> compared to some of the other i've had other hitch racks and compared to those one of the things i love about uh all kuats is they don't rattle around in the hitch going clunk 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 oh, yeah. uh, as you pull out and you know turn and whatnot so you don't get that janky sort of wow that looks super secure there brah um, the other thing is compared, and I mean, oh, that's, this is painful to say because I so adore so many Thule products. Uh, I just used two pieces of their luggage when I went to Memphis. Um, Kuat, to my knowledge, is the only brand of hitch rack out there that actually makes your car look nicer. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's a strange thing to say, but it doesn't look like something that your buddy Billy made in his garage. Yeah, no, it's true. It is a nicely finished product. The other thing that I didn't mention is that as a company, they do a bunch of good things. They get involved with local trail uh, maintenance and development. Uh, they're they're um, contributing to outdoors and um environmental preservation causes i think that they have their hearts in the right place i didn't even know about that i just like the yeah. products but that's really yeah. <laughs> that's lovely to hear yeah <laughs> oh very good um what do you got right. well so when i first became a cyclist 
Uh, everyone I knew just bought a set of three tire levers that came uh, in a little plastic sleeve and they did the job. I never needed three, but they were there kind of like sunshine, sunshine or the last four ounces of a 22 ounce beer. <laughs> Back in the 1980s, tire levers never broke. I don't know if they were better or what, but uh, and, you know, even then it was kind of rare that I ever needed a second lever. Um, but, you know, two definitely always got the job done. Right. Um, OK, you know, fast forward uh, 30 odd years and now we've got tubeless tires and there are some crazy tight fits. And I've lost track, honestly, of how many tire levers I've broken, even after spending whole minutes making sure the tire bead was pushed into the center of the rim channel. Um, recently, I had another one of those tire rim combinations that made me glad I was wearing eye protection in the form of <laughs> corrective eyewear uh, when plastic went flying. Um, that's when I went to my travel toolkit and pulled out a pair of Lazine's Sabre levers. The Sabre levers are chromally steel, and they, they were forged and then heat treated and then CNC machined so that you end up with really precise tolerances and absolutely zero bending or, better yet, breaking. It's handy uh, that they come in a set of two and have one end shaped for 15 millimeter axle nuts for those folks who do that. I haven't really needed that option. Um, they also include a bottle opener because, well, as I mentioned before, beer. Right. Uh, but the best part of these levers, truly, it's not the fact that they are metal. The best part is that because they are metal, they have a thin and well-curved hook on the end. I've had plenty of tire levers that were so thick in order to be stiff that I struggled to slide them, uh, slide yeah. the lever beneath the tire bead. Um, that's no problem with these levers. And because they are 150 millimeters long, which is way longer than any other lever I've ever owned, uh, they offer more leverage than other tire levers. They're $19.99, which might seem expensive for tire levers. But if I were to calculate like how many levers I've actually broken, I think this works out better in the long term. Um, you know, it, it, you'll never break these. You will never break these. All you have to worry about is the possibility that you may lose them because you've owned them for 40 years. Um, so <laughs> I, I am a fan. I, anything that's going to, you know, uh, tubeless is nice because you never flat, except for when you flat and then when you really need to get that tire off, having a tool that will actually do it has tremendous value to me. Yeah, I I'm kind of um, a finicky sort. And so I'm not someone who really enjoys having a lot of tubeless sealant all over my hands. <laughs> and so having a tool that allows me to get the tire off quickly and simply uh, before ending up covered in spooge uh, <laughs> is um, you're going to have know. to put that explicit warning on the podcast. <laughs> we I almost guess. made it. <laughs> Latex spooge. Tell us more. Um, I yeah, I just don't like having stuff yeah. all over. You know, I'm going to end up with it on my on my jeans or my shirt or whatever. Well, I don't shave my legs and I've I've I mean, just that's oh, a whole gosh. there's a there's a whole circle of hell dedicated to trying to get liquid latex out of your leg hair. Yeah, I, I you know, I, it's funny how you come across something every day that makes you grateful. <laughs> I'm so grateful I'm not covered in latex yeah. luge. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I'm a fan. And, uh, you know, I, it, this is just one of a great many different tools that Lazine offers. I don't think they get nearly enough credit for their tools. So I think they go. do a really nice job. You know, everyone talks about design, 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 and this is that and the other. But Lazine really, their stuff is very thoughtfully done. It's often multi-purpose. They do a nice job. They make nice products. 
Yeah. I don't uh, know anyone there either. I'll, I'll read my usual um, recommendation add-on, which is I don't have any friends there. No one I know would be benefit from me saying that they do a nice job. I just think they do. They've had enough turnover that I'm no longer certain if I know one know anyone there other than the yeah. CEO and I don't really much know him. We've shaken Everything hands I've ever once. gotten from them for review I've kept. That's an that's another sign that they do nice things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't release their stuff willingly. Yeah. All righty. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of the Pace Line. Um, John, this might be a really good opportunity for you to mention this thing called revolting. Ah, yes. Um, Well, first, I'll mention that a flatbed tow truck is just pulled up outside my window. That's convenient. Uh, So you'll hear that wherever you're listening. Um, Revolting is a podcast with myself and Steve Knievel. Uh, where we discuss things that are vaguely cycling related and we indulge pretty much every tangent. And, um, you know, it's the it's the ramblings of two 50 uh, something dirtbags getting to know each other and talking about uh, punk rock and injuries. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, TCI now has a new podcast. Uh the first two episodes are up and in fairly short order, we're going to have a third uh, and this will be a, a weekly thing. It looks like maybe possibly, maybe possibly it's going to be great. Yeah, it's already great for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like listening to it as I mix it. So there's that. Um, all righty, everybody. Hey, keep questions coming. This is fun. Uh, you all send us great stuff when you send it. If you've got an idea, Please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.